This episode of the Duct Tape Marketing Podcast is brought to you by Gusto, modern, easy payroll benefits for small businesses across the country. And because you're a listener, you get three months free when you run your first payroll. Find out at gusto.com slash tape. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Duct Tape Marketing Podcast. This is John Jantz and my guest today is Michael Bungate-Stanier. He is a senior partner of Box of Crayons, also the author of a great little book called The Coaching Habit and a new book we're going to talk about today called The Advice Trap. Be humble, stay curious, and change the way you lead forever. So Michael, welcome back. John, thank you. I mean, it's one of those weird moments where I'm like, I'm now old enough to be back on John's podcast again and have and have been a follower of yours for like two decades or something ridiculous. So it's always cool and a pleasure to be back here. Yeah, it's getting, it's get, it is getting a little weird. I, I, I actually <laughs> got interviewed not too long ago myself by somebody who, he didn't tell me how old he was, but I'm guessing he was about 29. <laughs> and, I know. and when I talked about not having the internet and selling products in 1997. I, 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 I don't, I think I ended the show because he didn't know what, to, what else to ask me. After that, so. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. You know, that All saying right. inside every old person is a young person going, what the hell just happened here? Well, I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm starting to understand that more and more. Well, I, you know, I, I commonly tell people I've, I started my business 30 years ago and, um, you know, when, when he starts thinking back to the fact that he was like two or three, um, yeah, you know, it seems unfathomable. Uh, we're here <laughs> to talk about you, not me. <laughs> so, Michael, I love a good metaphor. Obviously, the name duct tape marketing has served me well. Um, would you would you enlighten us a little bit with? I love the name box of crayons, but um, what is that? In your words, kind of what what are you trying to say there? Well, you know, one of the things that I do with a brand is I go, well, what does it mean to you? Do you think? Um, because boxing, because for me, what a brand is, is it's a promise kept. And what that means is if you, if you have a name and you have a kind of the, the, the scaffolding around that name, so your brand means something in the marketplace, really the most interesting place is to understand how it shows up in your customers' heads. And so when I go to people, I go, so what do you, when I say box of crayons, what do you think of? Because I get asked that question fairly regularly, and they, they inevitably go, well, it means possibilities and thinking outside the box and diversity and collaboration and playfulness. And I'm like, exactly. All of that stuff is what it's about. You know, when I started Box of Crayons 20 years ago, so, you know, a decade later than you, but still <laughs> a long time now, um, part of what I really wanted was a couple of things. I wanted it not to be about me because if it's if i'm the if i'm the center of the brand nothing scales beyond what i can do and i'm i'm a man of massive limitations so we'll be in real trouble if if it's all about me and we also wanted i wanted a something that would feel different um and have people go and this is my favorite reaction oh yeah i think i've heard of you guys and in my head, I always go, I'm pretty sure you haven't heard of me because we're, we're a relatively small company. I mean, we're not tiny, but we're small. And I'm, you know, and I'm a, you know, I'm a solid C-list celebrity. You know, some people have heard of me. Almost nobody has, though, really. So when people go, I think I've heard of you, I'm like, that's the brand name working in the way I hoped it would. Yeah, you know, I, I've grown some, but I must admit, you know, crayons uh, invoked in me a little envy because we could only afford the, the 16 crayon color box. And there were all those kids at school that had like the sixty-four color, so I'm scared oh, a little bit. I always I hated that I hated that kid. <laughs> all right, so uh, 
what is the advice trap? Because, I mean, advice used to work, especially when you were the boss. Oh, yeah. And advice still works. I mean, that's one of the things to put on the table right from the start, that this is not a proclamation to say stop giving advice because – you know, that is palpably ridiculous, not least because John and I are doing a podcast, which is an advice delivery system. What the advice trap is, is when you are seduced into thinking that giving your advice, your opinion, your insight, your ideas is your react, your, your best reactive immediate response. And what I'm trying to get people to do with the advice trap is to say, look, can you slow down the rush to action and advice giving? And can you stay curious a little bit longer? Because for sure, there is a really useful place for advice as an act of leadership, as an act of guidance, as an act of whatever it might be. And if you can stay curious a little bit longer, you're just going to really significantly increase the odds that your advice, when it comes, works as well as it might. You invoke the word curiosity. Uh, it's in the subtitle as well. And I, I kind of have an admission to make that I'm, I'm not necessarily that proud of is that I've always told people curiosity is my superpower. I mean, it, it being curious about things is kind of what probably is the, the driving force behind my business. But as I read your book, you know, it, it sort of dawned on me that I'm curious about things and not always curious about others. Well, it, we get seduced into wanting to be helpful and also uh, some other seductions that go a little deeper than just that kind of initial uh, kind of commitment to being helpful. So I agree with you, John. I think for people who are entrepreneurs and, and running small and medium-sized businesses, a curiosity which is often a, look, there's a problem here <laughs> and nobody else seems to be fixing it. Why couldn't I fix it? And then huh, I've got a business going, but how do I make this more effective, more efficient, reach more people, hit more scale, all of that sort of stuff, all the stuff that you teach. Um, you know, curiosity is a superpower of an entrepreneur. But when we're in leadership positions, when we have people reporting to us or even just in our lives, we're often because of, all sorts of factors driven to want to leap in and give this advice. And so let me just start by going, look, let me tell you the three reasons why having advice as your default response probably doesn't work. And the first two are kind of related. The first is this, almost certainly, and this is number one, you're busy trying to solve the wrong challenge because you get seduced into thinking that the first challenge that gets presented, the first challenge that shows up is the real challenge. And quite frankly, it almost never is. It is, you know, the, the first manifestations, people's first guess, their early hypothesis, stab in the dark, but rarely is the first challenge the real challenge. But John, even if it is the real challenge, let's just say for the sake of argument, you've actually nailed it and you're like, oh, this is the real challenge. Then the second issue with advice giving is your advice is actually not as good as you think it is. <laughs> and even though everybody listening here is going, oh, no, no, Michael, you haven't met me. My advice is, <laughs> my advice is stellar. It's perfect. Um, you know, I'll just say there are, there are numerous cognitive biases that are designed to make you think that your advice is outstanding. And honestly, it just rarely is. It's, it's dated. It's biased. You're come, you, you misunderstood the problems and your advice is off the, off, off par anyway. You, the only bit of your advice that is still valid, people can actually look up on Google now and get a clearer answer anyway. But even, John, if there's this mir miracle that's happened and not only is the, the challenge the real challenge, but you have a stellar idea that is just gold dust. The third issue, and this is 
the powerful one for the entrepreneurs and leaders listening in is to say, you giving advice may not be the strongest act of leadership in this moment because you're at this crossroads. Down one path is you giving the fast, good answer that moves people on and trains people to keep coming back to you for the next answer when the next challenge needs to be solved. And the alternative is giving people the capacity to come up with their own idea, know that their own idea is probably good enough. I mean, it probably might not be as good as your idea, but it's probably good enough to fix the thing that needs to be done and increase their sense of autonomy and confidence and competence and self-reliance so that the next time they don't come to you for help, they're like, I can fix this myself. I've got this sorted. And if you make the second choice, you're playing just a slightly longer-term game that expands the capacity and the confidence of your team, which means you work less hard, you have a team that is more engaged, and you're focused more on the right things to be focused upon. Yeah, you used a key word, train. I mean, I do think a lot of leaders end up doing that. People, after a while, they just give up, and it's like, eh, you know, <laughs> I'm expecting you to give me advice. Why would I commit to an idea of my own? Right. Or even more cynically, I've, I've spent years training you to solve my problems for me. This is perfect. I'm, I'm glad to see you working hard and I'll just go and implement the stuff that you want me to implement. Yeah. Boy, do I talk to a lot of business owners that, that have teams that, that say that, you know, that everybody brings the problems back to them instead of solving them. And I think that what you're hitting on is, is that's sort of our fault. Well, I think there's a way, I mean, it's, it's one of the irritants for me, which is like, don't bring me problems, only bring me answers. And I'm like, well, sometimes that's helpful, but sometimes it just leaves people stuck. They're like, I don't have an answer. <laughs> what do I do now? But if you come to people and you're like, look, I'm going to help you get clear on, you know, reframe your role. Your role is to help them figure out what the real challenge is and then help them get to the right answer. So it's, it's a collaboration. You're being a teacher. You're being a guide. You're making sure that the work gets done and that the answer gets found. But that doesn't mean you have to come up with the answer. So you stay curious to help figure out what the real challenge is. You help them figure out what ideas they've already got. If it's useful, you add your ideas into the mix. You just, you know, just wait a little bit. And then you're leaving people with that sense of, you know, I mean, empowerment gets overused as a word, but empowerment it's like it's good for them, but it's good for you. <laughs> it's it's what frees your people up so that they do their work. Yeah, without it, you pretty much can only handle what you can wrap your arms around. Exactly, and it's exhausting and frustrating <laughs> and exhausting. Did I mention exhausting? It's exhausting. So how do you start to distinguish between when you should be curious and when people legitimately need your advice? I mean, how do you know when? Yeah, well, it's practice. But what I would say at the moment is, at the moment, we've all got a well overdeveloped muscle around advice giving, and we've probably got an underdeveloped muscle around being curious. So when I say be curious, and be curious a little bit longer, I'm not saying, you know, for an hour, or for a day, or for a week, I'm going, can, can you stretch it for 90 seconds? <laughs> That's it. <laughs> and what that means is pretty much in any conversation, or actually in any interaction, you can practice being curious a little bit longer because it's what I'm asking for you to do is ask one or two questions before you launch into your advice. The more you do it, the better you get. So, you know, in both uh, the coaching habit book and the advice trap book, there's this kind of, pr kind of drive for practicality. And so, 
if you want to become more coach-like, which is, that's what I mean by staying curious a little bit longer, what I'm asking you to do is go, right, don't just listen to this conversation and go, yeah, John, Michael, they sound right. I will just try and be curious a bit longer. That doesn't work. You're like, okay, pick a person on your team. Pick that person on your team who triggers your advice monster. That's the metaphor at the heart of the advice trap, that thing that leaps in and keeps going, oh, no, you're going to add value to this conversation. Let me show you how. So pick that person on your team. Pick that situation where you find yourself defaulting and kind of reacting to giving him or her advice, even though you're like, ah, I wish I wasn't doing that. Like, okay, I'm going to try something different. And deliberately think about building a specific habit for that person in that context. Don't try and change the world in a day. That never works. But do pick a question, a person, a context and go, let me try it out. Let me see if I can stay curious for 90 seconds with that one person. Everyone loves payday, but loving a payroll provider, that's a little weird. Still, small businesses across the country love running payroll with Gusto. Gusto automatically files and pays your taxes. It's super easy to use, and you can add benefits and management tools to help take care of your team and keep your business safe. It's loyal. It's modern. You might fall in love yourself. Hey, and as a listener, you get three months free when you run your first payroll. So try a demo and test it out at gusto.com slash tape. That's gusto.com slash tape. Do you find that people who master this and, and folks that you have worked with, is there an element of, let's see, kind of outing their team? Uh, and, and what I mean by that is some people can't handle the curiosity. And all of a sudden you've learned maybe I'm probably using all the wrong words here, but, but you know, you're learning more about your team and maybe you're learning who are players and maybe who aren't. Oh, I think, I think that's exactly what happens. I mean, <laughs> we've all had that experience when somebody, you know, a boss comes back from a conference or a training session and they're acting weird and you're like, Oh dear, they've, 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 <laughs> they've read the book. They've heard the podcast. They've been on the training you know what, why don't we just see if we can grind them down and after two weeks they've probably forgotten it all and we can just we can just get back to the old ways of working. So when you invite people, so when you, when you invite people to step in and step up, when you empower people, you get to start seeing who does that and who doesn't do that, who's willing to take on responsibility and accountability and who isn't. And you run the you run the risk of exposing fault lines that might be currently hid at the moment. Now you may be going, and this is a fair question, do I want to do that? And what I would say to you is, my bet is at the moment you pay the price for covering up those fault lines. You know, you're leading a team or a company where you have people who are underperforming. You're probably doing the work or somebody else is doing the work. I mean, that's the other cost that gets done, which is like your really good people are covering and carrying the load for the people who aren't stepping up in the way that they should. And this commitment to lead based on curiosity does run the risk and reward of saying, actually, this is an invitation to see what you can do. When I ask, when I'm empowering you, you either step up or you don't. And if you don't, there may be consequences. Do you find, so So the obvious sort of leap here is that that person, the advice monster, as you talked about it, that, that just wants to spew and spew and spew, 
Do you find that the opposite sometimes comes true? So in other words, there are people that actually want to hold all the cards and not share even, maybe not even just advice, but like what's going on, how to win. <laughs> uh, you know, so does that, you know, is that sort of the other side of the same coin? I think, it, I think that's definitely related. I mean, when we talk about the advice monster and why we default to giving advice, you know, there's a there's an immediate and obvious answer, which is why we also trained to give advice and leap in like this. And it's because we're all trained to give advice. I mean, we've literally spent our whole lives being rewarded to give the answer. You know, so it's like, oh, you know, look at me. I'm six years old and I've got my hand up in class. Or look at me at high school. I'm getting my whatever scores are or university. I'm hitting my GPAs and early career. I'm trying to learn my stuff. I'm trying to be a subject matter expert. There's a lot of pressure to have the answer. But beyond the, look, this is a habit, there are some deeper drivers for why we like to be in control. And I'd say the three of them are this. One is there's a, and we call these the three personas of the advice monster, tell it, save it, control it. So tell it is, look, I like to be the one who's the smartest person in the room. I like to have the answer. I like my answer to be the one that's acted upon. So there's this kind of short-term good feeling but there's that longer term pressure, John, of going, oh, I've got, I've, I'm supposed to always have the answer. If I don't have the answers to everything, then I'm failing. The second of the advice monsters is save it. Save it is that, uh, look, look at me. Look how I c take care of all my people. This is the short term win. It's like, look, I feel like I am the mother figure or the father figure of my team. But the price you pay is this belief in it. No, I've, I'm not allowed to let anybody stumble or fail or struggle or sweat. And in fact, if they're finding it hard, then I'm going to take responsibility for them. And, uh, and if that happens, then I fail. And that is exhausting and impossible. I, I actually see people do that even with their clients, you know, caring, caring more about their clients results than the client to, it's not just, not just teams or employees, is it? Exactly. And well, the, I, what's interesting about this, John, is these dynamics are uh, they're just human dynamics. You know, that you have this with your partner, with your kids, with your clients, with your team, <laughs> with your business partner. You know, if you've got a relationship with people, then these three drivers, the, the advice driver, I need to be the smart one, the save it driver, I need to be the person who rescues the situation. And then the third one is the controller one, which is like, I need to have my fingers in the pies. I need to have my hands on the steering wheel. I need to be in control. And while that gives you that short-term feeling about, look at me, I'm the man, I'm the person, I get to make all the decisions, uh, there's that impossibility of, A, being able to control everything and also the fact that you're not willing to share control, share responsibility, share accountability. And it's exhausting. And those three drivers, they manifest in different ways. And for sure, for controller, one of them is like, I'm going to have the answers. And I'm going to tell you. The other is I'm going to have the answers. and I'm not going to tell you. <laughs> it's, just a, it's slightly different behavior, but the same driver behind it. So um, I actually uh, keep a copy of the seven questions from the coaching habit inside my planner. Oh, thank um, you. That's, that's high meeting, praise. Well, every meeting I jump on, I review them so that I can you know bring that and my values, you know, to that meeting. I'm curious in your own work. Um, obviously, the coaching habit was, I'm, I say obvious, I'm guessing, was born out of your work. Um, how, how now has the advice trap 
kind of impacted your coaching? Is it an evolution or is it just something, or is it something maybe you've learned uh, working with clients? Well, it's a combination of things, John. That one was for just in the same way that there are some people in this world who read The Coaching Habit and went, oh, these questions, <laughs> these questions are the bee's knees. I love them. I'm going to stick them inside my planner. I'm going to start incorporating them. And I've shifted the way that I lead. So there are lots of people like you. There's also lots of people who read the book, liked the book, and then didn't do anything with it, didn't change their behavior. So part of it was trying to tackle with the admission that my book fails probably more than it succeeds in terms of changing behavior. And then I'm like, so what, what do I know about behavior change? And in the coaching habit, you know, the first chapter is about um, building a new habit and the science behind habit building. And I'm like, so knowing about habit building isn't enough. So what, where do I need to go with that? And so I researched and I kind of dug into the most powerful forms of behavior change that I knew and I came across some work based on an academic called Ron Heifetz talking about the difference between technical change and adaptive change, which I kind of relabeled easy change and hard change and went, okay, there's some, there's some change in this world that is easy. You know, you kind of, you get the knowledge, you practice it, you get the hang of it and you've, you're done. Um, and we all face that regularly. But we all know hard change as well, those commitments to try and do something that for whatever reason, we just can't seem to get on top of. You know, for some reason, I was like, I can't crack. Who knows what it is, leading a team or writing a book or, or exercising regularly, even though with the best of intentions, even though we have all the knowledge, we can't shift our behavior. And so the, the heart of this new book, where the metaphor, the key kind of message is, you must learn how to tame your advice monster, is all about tackling hard change and going here's actually how you commit to behaving in a way that serves future you and who you want to be and how you level up as a leader rather than just tweaking the way that you currently show up so i do have to ask you the ironic question because of course, uh, um, you know I've, I've written a book called the self-reliant entrepreneur teaching people how to be self-reliant you know, <laughs> exactly which is sort of like on them now you've written a book uh giving advice on how not to give advice um, that's do you, right. Do you wrestle with that sometimes in terms of trying to trying to reconcile that idea? Well, I, well, I'll say a couple of things. The first is I love I love the self reliant entrepreneur. I think that is a really great book. Um, you know, I love the referral engine when it came out, but I think that this new book of yours, or relatively new book, has eclipsed it as my favorite book of yours. Thank you. It uh, it, it, it is hard to imagine how uh, contextually relevant it has become. <laughs> Exactly. I'm like, nice, nice timing on that, I guess. Um, and the other thing I'll say is the very first, the very first kind of self-help, self-development course I ever went on when I was about 18 or something like that was a two-day course on how to be more spontaneous, which is also like ridiculously doesn't make sense at all. Why would you go on a course on being spontaneous? But if you've been, if you, I mean, that comes down to it for me, which is like, look, I am, advice is good we're all I'm very pro good advice at the right time from the right person and this book is at its heart which is simply this simple to say easy a difficult to do behavior change can you stay curious a little bit longer can you rush to action and advice giving a little bit more slowly well and it's a beautiful combination of being prescriptive but then also presenting uh pretty global, like you say, human condition uh, ideas. And I, and I think that allows people to personalize it. Yeah. Thanks, John. Yeah. All right. So I've been asking a lot of people this question. 
lot of a lot of changes going on right now. We're recording this at the beginning of April of 2020. Um, I'm just curious, um, are you investing in yourself right now? And if so, how? Yeah, I am. And um, uh, the question that I wrote, um, I'm, I use the bullet journal process as a kind of, you know, checking in with myself and keeping myself on track and trying to remember how I want to do the stuff I want to do. And the question I set myself um, at the start of this month actually was, who are my new teachers? Who are my new teachers? Because I've had a lot of good people in my inbox in my, and on my bookshelves for a long time, but I'm feeling that now is a time for for reinvention for me. I mean, I nine months ago stepped away from being the CEO of Box of Crayons. So I've, I'm stepping away from that as an identity. And a month ago, launched this new book, and I did this big TEDx talk that I've been practicing for months. So those are the two big things I had my eyes on, and that they've stepped away, and they're behind me now, I should say. So I was always going to be in this position of going, all right, now what am I doing? <laughs> Who am I now? You know, question, you know, number one, version 63, who will I be when I grow up? So... What I'm trying to do is read broadly and find people who challenge my thinking and challenge my sense of self um, as I think about what the next phase of what I do might be. And honestly, John, I'm trying not to rush it because the temptation is to fill the void, particularly when there's that kind of sense of kind of anxiety in the air. And for me, stuff works best when I give it the right amount of time to emerge, um, when it's nourished by unexpected and different and diverse input. Yeah, that's interesting. I love that. It's a beautiful question. Who are my new teachers? And and I, I find I've, I have, I read like crazy, like I'm sure you do too. Um, and I've just been drawn to uh, some works of nature and some works from indigenous peoples. Um, and I don't know that I intentionally said, you know, who are my new teachers, but I, I think I sort of went there <laughs> and, and I hadn't really thought of that. So, Michael, tell people where they can find out more about your work and uh, obviously your books. Oh, thank you. Yeah, um, mbs.works is the hub of the of the world, so um, access to books and resources and stuff like that. If the advice monster thing takes your fancy, go to theadvicetrap.com, and there's actually a little questionnaire where you can take you know 20 questions, so maybe three or four minutes, and you can find out which of the three advice monsters, tell it, save it, or control it, is the strongest driver for you. So if you'd like to go a little deeper into that, then that's the questionnaire. Michael, it's great catching up with you as always, and uh, it's so been so fun to watch your growth and success. You, uh, you've really helped scores of people. So thank you, I John. appreciate you by here, and uh, hopefully we'll run into you soon out there on the road. That sounds perfect. Thanks, man. 